0: On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we want to talk about three subjects that sound different, but they're all related to one another. We want to talk about the question of inherited sin. Do we inherit sin from our forefathers? Are babies born with inherited sin? Is there a depravity, and a hereditary depravity? Are we born as depraved beings? And then... Subsequent to those considerations, should we be baptizing babies because of the other two things that we want to talk about? So inherited sin, hereditary depravity, and infant baptism. That's going to be our discussion tonight on the Virtual Bible Study. Stay tuned.
1: 313814567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's word on this edition of the virtual Bible study.
0: And this is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday night, October the 3rd, 2019. Thanks for joining us on the Virtual Bible Study tonight. My name is Greg Gwynn. I'm one of the regular hosts of the Virtual Bible Study. My son Jacob is still uh, out on vacation, and so we're trying to muddle through without him, make do without his technical expertise. I've got my good friend Monty Overton back with me tonight. But we've got reinforcements tonight, Monty. Uh, Josh McCord is with us to try and help uh, keep us on the straight and narrow. Path tonight. Uh, we appreciate both of you all for being here tonight. Kyle uh, is behind the, uh, the uh, board and controlling all the wires and switches and connections. Thanks, Kyle. Good to have you here tonight. Yep. All right, so a uh, couple of things. We want to do a little bit of housekeeping before we get started on our topic tonight. We've got a gospel meeting coming up here at the College U Church in Columbia, Tennessee, and it starts a week from this coming Sunday. It starts on Sunday, October the 13th, and it runs through the following Friday night, October the 18th. And we're asking any of our, any and all of our listeners who are within a, a driving distance of Columbia, Tennessee to please come and join us for this special effort. We'll be meeting uh, at our regular Sunday morning times, 930, 1030, and then we'll have a 230 in the afternoon service on Sunday. Then Monday through Friday will be at 7 p.m. If you want more info, we're going to have different speakers, by the way, each, each day of that gospel meeting. And if you want more information about the speakers and the times and the, and the directions, the location, go to our website, collegeview.com. Remember, College View is spelled funny, C-O-L-L-E-G-E, College View, V-U-E collegeview.com go to collegeview.com and on our uh, front page you'll see uh, an announcement about our upcoming gospel meeting we want you to to be there um we always remind you to that you can get a bumper sticker to help us spread the word about the virtual Bible study send us a uh, an email to questions at collegeview dot com just say send me a send me a bumper sticker and give us your u s mail your snail mail address so we can stick that in the mail to you we'll be glad to do that we'd like for you to tell people about us if you are active on Facebook you can help us get the word out on Facebook as well um, we have a mailing list. We have an email list. We send out our our on Thursdays. We send out an update about our program for that night, uh, and then on Tuesdays every week we send out a, a, a an email version of our church bulletin. And you can get on that mailing list if you're not on it by sending us an email to questions at collegeu.com. dot com. Now we'd love for you to participate in our study tonight, and there are uh, some ways that you can do that. We try to make it as easy as possible. You can call in. We have a toll-free number, 877-381-4567. So we'll be monitoring the phone lines. We have our email inbox open and waiting for emails at... And you send emails to questions at com, and we'll be monitoring that inbox. And then, of course, our chat room, uh, is open. And that's actually usually where we get most of our comments. And so, Monty and Josh are going to be monitoring the email and the chat room. So if you're, if you go to the dot com, you'll see a window with the live video and just below it, you'll see the chat room. And you might want to pop that chat room. Just underneath the chat room, there's a po- there's a little button for to pop that window out. And you can get that and sort of line it up so you can be watching the video and have the chat room window open at the same time. But anyway, we want your participation. If you can help us, please do so. So we sent these questions out to our update list earlier today. Number one, do all men inherit the sin of Adam? Yes or no? Why or why not? Give verses. Now, if your answer to number one is no... Uh, And I think most of our listeners will likely say no. We want to talk about that. If you disagree, please let us know why. But if your answer is no, we do not inherit the sins of Adam, then you got some verses that need explanation. And we want to look especially at Psalm 51, 5 and Romans 5, verse 12. We'll look at those verses. Number three, what is the doctrine of total hereditary depravity? And is it a true or false doctrine? Why or why not? And then finally, what's the history of infant baptism? And is it taught in the Bible? Is it scriptural? That's the way we want our study to develop tonight. So we start out with the first question. Do all men inherit the sin of Adam? What do you think? Who wants to start? Uh, Josh? Uh,
2: Well, I think the first person that comes to to my mind when we talk about that topic. We got
0: him? Go ahead. Keep talking.
2: Okay. First verse that comes to my mind when we talk about that topic would be Ezekiel 18, verse 20.
0: Go ahead, just a minute. Let me
3: see if I can get you. Keep talking there, Josh.
2: All right. Can you hear me now? <laughs>
3: we can hear you just not in that mic. It's okay. Just keep talking. Okay. All
2: right. Well, I was going to say Ezekiel 18, verse 20 just basically says the soul that sins, it shall die. So, I mean, that tells me that uh, I'm not inheriting sin from anybody. Uh, based on my own sin or lack thereof is what I'll be judged on.
0: All right, so read that. You gave the verse, Ezekiel 18, verse 20. I think that's a key verse that we've just got to, we've got to put that out on the table. Read that for us, Josh. Ezekiel 18,
2: verse 20 says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him.
0: OK, now I'm getting an echo. Did I do something to get an echo? Kyle? OK. All right. So uh, that's a pretty plain, straightforward statement. Uh, either that is true that the son does not inherit the iniquities of the father and the father does not uh, bear the iniquity of the son. If that's not true, then Ezekiel is a false prophet. So we got to, we got to decide. Um, are we going to say Ezekiel just was wrong about that? But, of course, that's the test of a prophet, Monty. If a prophet prophesies and it doesn't come true and it's not true, then he's a false prophet. And, and then they were be,
4: supposed to take him out and kill him.
0: Yeah, And so he should be totally rejected. In, yeah. in his day, he should have been killed for being a false prophet. But we don't believe that's Sure, We believe Ezekiel was an inspired prophet of God. And I want you to read it one more time, Josh. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. It
2: says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. All
0: right. I, 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 yeah, I just don't know how you can get that any plainer. Uh, it, it just seems so straightforward. Um, there's, there's a, a, that's, I think, maybe one of the very best ways to answer that question is go to that passage in Ezekiel. There's, a, there's a, a couple of other approaches that we might use. Um, if we went to Matthew chapter 18 and considered something that happened in the life of Jesus, uh, some of the instruction that he gave, in Matthew 18, uh, verse 1, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Monty, that seems to me to be saying that children are innocent. I mean, if I'm supposed to become like them, to be spiritually acceptable in the kingdom of God, then that just doesn't harmonize with the idea that they are corrupted in sin.
4: I mean, we could talk about several attributes of a child and things that would most likely apply there. But I think that the innocence of the child is a very strong point there. If we're going to be going to heaven, going to be in the kingdom, then we've got to learn to be like those children were. Yeah. And and again, that statement would preclude
0: the possibility that they are... That they've inherited sin and they're corrupted. He's not in the, saying and be and depraved lost. like that child. Yeah, He's yeah. saying be
4: innocent so, like that child.
0: So that, and that verse is going to go to our second question about mm-hmm. depravity too. So I think exactly that. Right. So remember that verse, Matthew 18 verse 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 25 says, He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. There's no respect of persons. Mm-hmm. So everything we read in the scriptures suggests the idea of individual accountability. I'm responsible for my own deeds. I'm, I'm going to be held accountable for what I have done, not what someone else has done.
4: You know, with the abundance of scriptures that we can read in the Bible that sets forth that principle there, we don't read anything anywhere in the Bible that tells me that I'm responsible for anything that Adam did. Right. I mean, that's not taught anywhere in any way, so...
0: Well, we're going to look at a couple of verses here in a minute that that some people would like to use to, to maybe raise that question. And they're going to try to make that case. But any, any, any verse that we would look at subsequent to the ones we've already read has to harmonize with the ones we already read. Yeah. The ones we already read said that the son should not bear the iniquity of the father and the father should not bear the iniquity of the son. And and we're supposed to become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, any subsequent verse we read has got to make sense and harmonize with
4: those plain statements. You know, that passage in Isaiah there was telling us about something about the nature of God. And God's nature hasn't changed throughout eternity. So, He's the same. And so whatever we understand about any particular scripture has to harmonize with the nature of God. I think that's right.
0: We got an email from our friend Kent in Calhoun, Georgia, who says concerning do do we inherit the sins of Adam? He said no. The case being that sin is based upon personal thought and action such cannot be inherited. He references Ezekiel 18, verse 20, that we cited. He also mentions Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and that's a good verse that talks about judgment and what will be the basis on which we will be judged. In Second Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that, he hath done, whether it be good or bad. No no indication there it has anything to do with Adam and what Adam hmm. did. And then he, he references Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3. In Revelation chapter 20, 13, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. Uh, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. I mean, just over and over again, we see that same principle being spelled out. And so I think the answer to the first question from the scriptures has to be emphatically a no. We do not inherit the sins of Adam or the sin of Adam. You know, the, the, the principle basically is that when Adam and Eve committed that very first sin, therefore that sin, that specific sin, has been handed down to all the myriad of descendants of Adam ever since. And uh, the fact is the Bible never says that, never never supports that conclusion. Josh?
2: I was looking at James 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, when every man is tempted, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, and then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Now, so that verse is talking about not you know, because of Adam's sin, but it's when every each individual is... Uh, tempted when it brings forth, you know,
3: when it's fully come to fruition, when it brings forth sin. Exactly right. Exactly right. Kyle, any thoughts? I think if we inherit anything, it's the consequences of that sin. We, you know, sin entered the world because of that uh, action, but we did not inherit. We don't inherit it, uh, sin from death. We don't need to be baptized as babies. No sprinkling of, of you know, infant baptism. It's just it's not in the Bible. It's not a biblical doctrine. though.
0: I think you're right. And I think it's a, I think it's a point worth noting what you said is that there are consequences. We bear consequences of Adam's sin. But, you know, Monty, a lot of times we we bear consequences of sins that other men do.
4: Yeah. I mean, we've talked before. Uh, I can be driving down the road in perfect way inside the speed limit inside my lane. Everything I'm doing is perfectly straight up by the law. And somebody can run across the road, be drunk, and run over in my lane and hit me and injure me, or maybe terribly injure me, something that I can't recover from. I'm paralyzed. I wasn't sinning. I'm bearing consequences of that man's sin, but I still have to deal with it. That's right. And we do bear the consequence of Adam's sin.
0: Nobody's Mm -hmm. denying that. Uh, Physical death came subsequent to Adam's sin. we still subject to physical death. Uh, there, There's disease. There, there's uh, hard labor. I mean, the, the, the things before the sin were apparently a lot more pleasant lot easier, than yeah. they are now. And, and God said to Adam and to his descendants, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. And so there's consequences that have come to mankind because Adam sinned. But that's not saying we inherit his specific sin. Yeah. Anything else, Josh?
2: No, I, I think we hit the nail on the head. There's so many okay. verses that say it's, it's each individual. Okay. And,
0: say and I just want to repeat again. Now we're going to look at a couple of verses here in a minute, and there may be others that that you want to su- people might want to suggest in the chat room. But any other verse we look at has to harmonize with the verses we already, we already referenced and, and we'll, we'll, uh, consider more of that when we come back. We're gonna come back and ask the question, then how do we explain Psalm 51 5, Romans 5 verse 12? We're gonna look at that when we come back. Stay with us on the virtual
4: Bible study chat room says we can't hear Josh. Did you hear
1: what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement.
2: I'm James Buchanan from Columbia, Tennessee, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study.
0: Here's some quotes worth pondering. By swallowing evil words unsaid, no one has ever harmed his stomach. Criticism may not be agreeable, but it is necessary. It fulfills the same function as pain in the human body. It calls attention to an unhealthy state of things.
1: Man, wish I'd said that. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program.
0: And we're back on the virtual Bible study. Uh, We're talking about inherited sin. Hereditary depravity and infant baptism. We're still on the inherited sin question. And the three of us, and, well, the four of us, Kyle as well, we have come to the conclusion from what the scriptures plainly teach that we do not inherit the sin of Adam, uh, and, and, and we're personally accountable for our own choices and our own deeds. Now, when we make that point, and I think it is a Bible point, a couple quite, a couple verses are brought up, and people who want to defend the notion of inherited sin will reference, for instance, Psalm 51, verse 5. Now, setting the stage here just a little bit. Remember, Psalm 51 is a psalm of King David, and it seems especially uh, all agree that this was written by David as he... It, experienced remorse over the sin that he had committed with Bathsheba. We know that horrible episode in the life of King David. He not only committed adultery, but he also committed murder. And it was a, a horrible episode in a, in a life of uh, a, a good man, but that was a particularly horrible episode in his life. And it seems in Psalm 51 that he was writing with that in mind. Uh, he says, for instance, in verse 3, uh, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Here's the key verse that those who believe in inherited sin would try to to use. The key verse, verse 5 Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. All right. So uh, the way that's worded, some would like to put the interpretation on it. I was shapen iniquity,
4: and in sin did my mother conceive me. How how are we going to answer that, money? Well, when I read this, uh, the New King James says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. <clears throat> He's talking about his mother. <clears throat> it's not anything that he had done. It's what his mother had done. Uh, Behold, I was brought forth in, in iniquity. His mother brought him forth. It may be into an evil world, right. But not a, not that he himself had done anything wrong. And it says, "In sin, my mother conceived me." His mother had was a, committed she was sin. A she was a sinner, and in that state of being there of her being a sinner uh she con- she conceived a child yeah so but that didn't it's just no reflection on the child there it's not discussing the child he's discussing the state of his parents when he when he was conceived and born
0: i think exactly right that makes harmony with the other verses that we were saying so his mother was a sinner well people people sin all have sinned and come short of the glory of god romans 3 verse 23 says she had made choices she had made sinful choices, just like we all do. She she was a sinner. She conceived a child as a sinner, and she brought him forth into a world of iniquity. Okay, I, I, but that doesn't say that the baby born was thus sinful or inherited sin. He was born to a sinful mother, and he was born into a sinful world. That's true of us all. It always has been,
4: ever since Adam and Eve. You know, as far as we can tell, every child that ever bo- was born was had that same situation going on. Exactly right. Josh?
2: Well, and he had to deal with the consequences of sin all throughout his life. I mean, like you said in verse 3, he said, My sin is ever before me. He was talking about the things that he had done wrong, so the effects of sin had played a part in his life. That's what he was dealing
4: with here, I think. I think that's exactly right. Uh, Daniel Law sent in an email, and in that, to answer that question. said, Psalm 51 deals primarily with the sins the psalmist is personally responsible for in verse chapter 51, verse 3. The sin and iniquity David was brought forth in is not taught to have been inherited in the chapter. Okay, I think that's right. Right.
0: Um, In in email, Kent from Georgia says there's nothing in Psalm fifty-one five that that there's nothing in this passage that David in his conception was a sinner. The activity of sin ascribed is to his mother, and that's of course that's what we were saying. And I, I agree. I think that's exactly right so that's a very famous and familiar verse for those who would teach inherited sin we think it just doesn't get the job done at all so let's take one let's take another verse here and this is another one that is commonly used trying to uphold this doctrine that is so plainly taught against in other passages we already uh, write down in fact we're going to look at Romans five twelve, and you might want to put in the right in the margin of your Bible, Ezekiel eighteen twenty, because Ezekiel eighteen twenty is plain. Romans five verse twelve is a little harder. I tell you what, you know, Peter said over in Second in Peter three that Paul had written some things that are hard to understand, and I've always believed that Peter probably had in mind the Book of Romans, because some of the, Romans is one of the more difficult books in the New Testament. And there's some passages in the book of Romans that are pretty tough. And and this is this is chapter 5 is not an easy passage here in Romans. I so what's our rule about Bible study and 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 Bible interpretation and understanding? Let the easy verses help you understand the harder verses. That is that is so fundamental, that's so basic, money. Let the ones that are easy to understand Help you understand the ones that are harder to understand.
4: It gets back to what we've been talking about: harmonizing. If I can understand what this easy one is, this harder one has to harmonize yeah. with it because God's not the author of confusion. Ezekiel eighteen twenty: the the son shall not bear the iniquity of
0: the father, the the father shall not bear the iniquity of the son. Okay, I, I get that. Uh, that. That's easy. That's now I got, I'm going to use that, and I'm going to use that to help me understand this harder one in Romans chapter five, verse twelve. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, the the twist on that, or uh, the, the way it would like to be used, is through one man sin entered, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I think the first thing you got to understand about that what kind of what kind of death is is he talking about there? Uh, I think he's talking about spiritual death because it it it, notice so death passed on all men for all have sinned. It, it, It couldn't be talking about physical death because that would that would include babies who haven't sinned babies sometimes die and they don't die because they sinned this death is is a death that happens because we sin mm-hmm. and so i think he's talking about spiritual death what entered the world through sin spiritual death now we know physical death we know physical death was a consequence of that sin too but that's i don't think that's what he's talking about here this is talking about spiritual death and it, and spiritual death is something we all deal with because we sin, Not because Adam sinned, but because we sinned. Adam died spiritually the day that he sinned. We also die because we sin. We die not because Adam sinned. We die because we sinned. Josh, yeah, I just think get right in.
2: I just think the last phrase is key. It says, for that all have sinned. I mean, so what's being considered here is that all people have sinned, like you said. So if we just read the first part the verse maybe, we think, well, yeah, uh, by one man sinner in the world and death by sin. So it's sort of an inherited thing. But I think that's the point we've been making all of sin, and so spiritual death is a consequence
0: of that. Okay, so when you're studying that, un- underline the last expression, the last phrase, all have sinned. Death passed on all men because Adam sinned. No, that's not what it says. Death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's why we die spiritually, because we've sinned.
4: If we look at the context of this, he goes on in verse fourteen and says that death reigned from Adam until Moses, and then you go on to verse fifteen and he starts talking about but the free gift is not like the transgression for and it talks about the gift here that he's talking about is salvation. And so the context here has to be spiritual death and spiritual salvation. It's not talking about physical death. It's not talking about inheriting Adam's sin. It's saying that men had a condition that from then on from the time Adam sinned. Forward, all people that survive long enough sin. And because of that, then they're separated from God. That's what sin, that spiritual death is. It's a separation from God. And that that has reigned until he talks about in verse 15 here about a gift, a, a, the gift of salvation that God's made available to us. It fixes grace. that and yep. reunites us with God. It ends that separation. Exactly right. So, again, verse 12. Now, you got to be careful with verse 12 because you could read that. So,
0: by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Oh, well, Adam died physically. And we all die physically. So that's a sign that his sin passes on to us. No, it's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. Then the last half of the verse, death passed on all men because all have sinned. The death is talking about his it, spiritual death. And the reason I die spiritually is not because Adam sinned, but because I sinned. I just think that's straight up. And, and it harmonizes with everything else that we see in the scriptures. Um, Kent says, um, Romans 5.12, the passage does not teach that the guilt of Adam's sin was transferred upon all the world. The passage teaches that by one man's sin entered into the world and that death passed upon all men for all have sinned. One sins not because of the inheritance of sin. One sins because of one's accountable thoughts and actions. I think that's right.
4: All right, so uh, Daniel in his uh, email he sent in, says Romans 5.12 actually teaches the reason all die is all sin. Verse 14 says some... Uh, had not sinned according to the same lightness, there is a personal responsibility we all have for our own sinfulness. I think that's right. I think that's exactly
0: right. And and again, to bear to bear out confirmation that this is the right way to interpret that verse is uh, babies die that have not sinned. This says the the death that this passage has under consideration is personal sin, and so it couldn't be physical death. All uh, death passed on all men, for that all have sinned. Babies haven't sinned, but they are still subject to death. So the death here can't be physical death; it has to be spiritual death. So again, those are those are two uh, Psalm fifty-one five, Romans five verse twelve. Two of the probably the two most commonly used verses trying to justify this idea of inherited sin. And we're just going to say they just don't teach that. And if they did, they'd be flatly contradicting other plain verses of Scripture, and we'd have a major problem on our hands. We just don't think they do. Those verses don't support the idea of inherited sin. We're going to grab a a, a break, and when we come back, there's an associated doctrine, guys, that actually takes this a little bit further. it's, it's, It's more than that I just inherit the sins of Adam. That's what falsely is taught. But Calvin, John Calvin went even further and said, actually, you you inherit more than just the sin of Adam. You inherit a depraved nature. You can't do good until some action of the Holy Spirit upon you. We're going to try to define the idea of total hereditary depravity. uh, and, And we'll look at that when we come back from this break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study.
0: And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. This is Greg Gwen with this week's bullet point. It seems that every congregation struggles to achieve a happy medium when it comes to the thermostat setting in the church auditorium. Some are perpetually cold while others are simultaneously too hot. One will be shivering and wearing a heavy coat and a lap blanket while another sitting nearby will be employing one of those funeral home fans that are invariably located in the pews. What we hope to do is find a temperature setting that is acceptable to the majority of folks resulting in worshipers that are neither cold nor hot. But despite our best efforts, everyone must realize that those whose sensitivities are at the extremes of the hot and cold spectrum will still wish for higher or lower settings on the thermostat. We beg for patience and a long-suffering attitude on the part of everyone. On the other hand, the spiritual temperature chart is completely different. We absolutely do not want to find Christians in the in-between lukewarm range. Do you recall what the Lord said about the Laodiceans, of sins? Quote, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou work cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Revelation three verses fifteen and sixteen. We fear that there are too many of God's people today who would be described as lukewarm. These are the ones who want a measure of religion, but not too much. They want an association with God's people, but they also want to be accepted by their friends in the world. They know they should be faithful in attendance, but their secular activities demand a lot of their time. In short, they want it both ways. God's word says it can't be done. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus taught, No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So, Christian, are you neither cold nor hot? Are you lukewarm? that's this week's bullet point. Think about it.
1: Broadcasting around the world with truth that are out of this world. The virtual Bible study. Take it away, guys.
0: And we're back on the virtual Bible study. We want to remind you that the virtual Bible study is brought to you each Thursday night by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can find out more about us by going to our website, Uh, collegeview.com. A lot of information there. Also, a lot of archives are available at our associated page thevirtualbiblestudy.com and so you can find out a lot about us and a lot about what we believe and practice we're trying to have bible authority for all that we do say and teach and so uh check us out there on our websites com and thevirtualbiblestudy.com and if you have questions I mean you can you can send us an email i mean that any time day or night send us an email and we'll try to take into consideration uh <clears throat> what you have to say um we want to remind you that you're, if you're watching the Virtual Bible Study tonight, you're watching it on YouTube, you're watching it on our channel for the Virtual Bible Study. We have another, uh, YouTube channel that is called College View Live Stream, and we are live streaming all of our Bible studies and all of our sermons. And so, there's about four hours of content there every week, and you can, uh, Easily access those. You can watch live uh, during the live times that we're in Bible study and worship. That stream is going out live, but it immediately becomes an archived version uh, just as soon as as the live stream ends. And so you can go back and watch past uh, uh, Bible study periods. Uh, Right now we're studying Genesis on Sunday morning. We're studying the parables of Jesus on Wednesday night. I think both of those are pretty good studies that have lots of information we need. And then of course you can watch uh our sermons and you can go back and watch past sermons. So make use of those resources at any time. We're talking about inherited sin, total hereditary depravity and infant baptism. So we ask the question, a follow up really. This is this is an associated point, but it goes a little bit further. Uh total hereditary depravity. What is that doctrine and is it true or false? Well, the Catholics taught, had been teaching for a long time that babies inherit the sins of, the, of, of Adam or the sins of their forefathers. Uh, John Calvin, who was one of the Reformers in the 1500s, actually took that a bit further and said that man is, is not only born with sin, but he's born lost and unable totally incapable of doing anything to save himself. And I've got some quotes here that I think sort of illustrate just how how far this position goes. Here's Edward T. Hitchcock's from the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches. He said, Being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under just condemnation without defense or excuse. Lorraine Botner in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination says, quote, Fallen man is so morally blind that he uniformly prefers and chooses evil instead of good, as do the fallen angels or demons. And the famous Baptist debater Ben Bogart uh, in a book called Total Depravity says, quote, The depraved sinner cannot act except by the enabling grace of God through the Spirit. And so the position of these Calvinists is that, Man is depraved, and it takes an act of God to to change his heart so that he can respond to God. But God doesn't do that for everybody, Monty, because there are only certain ones that are chosen. And so men are born totally depraved, but God, so that's the first first bit of calvin total hereditary depravity that's the t in tulip we sometimes talk about the acronym tulip for calvinism t is total hereditary depravity you were you you were born to pray money you couldn't do it if you wanted to you couldn't do good but god unconditionally chose certain ones unconditional election he chose you maybe and and then for he he, he acted upon your heart To make it possible for you to do good instead of bad. Because you were just totally inclined to do bad before because you were born totally depraved. But if you're one of the specially chosen elect ones, then God acted upon you to make it possible for you to do good. That's the unconditional election. Um, But all, all men born depraved, totally depraved, incapable of doing good. What do you think?
4: Well, Daniel in his email said it pointed out to us Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29. And that scripture says, "Behold, I have found only this: that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. They have sought out. Man has sought out devices, uh, which would imply that he was okay, innocent, as we've been talking about, until he got old enough to do this seeking. But God made him upright. Yeah. Uh, at, at, in the beginning, when at the creation, at the, co- the completion of creation, God looked at things and said, It is very good.' God done a good job. He made everything perfect and just right." It's man that has corrupted it, but it doesn't imply here that I have inherited or I was born totally depraved, but it says this is saying God made me upright. Exactly right. And that I messed that up. That's
0: a really good verse. Note that uh, if you're you're taking notes, if you're writing down things in the margin of your Bible, that Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29 is really a good verse. Josh?
2: Yeah, I had a passage in mind from Deuteronomy 1, and Deuteronomy 1, verse uh, 35, it says, surely there shall not be one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers. So he's talking about the promised land. Men were evil, they couldn't go in. Uh, but in verse 39, he said, Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. So he's talking about the children didn't know. And they
0: didn't know about evil. Yeah, and
2: so they're going to get to go in. Yeah,
0: so they hadn't that's a good evil. a good verse too. Here's another one from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, Chapter 28, the prophet is told to take up a a proverb or a, a prophecy against the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, verse 12, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, thus says the Lord God. So this was a pronouncement, a prophetic pronouncement against the king of Tyre. Look at verse 15 concerning the king of Tyre. The prophet says, "Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee." All right, So uh, he, he was perfect until he chose to sin, uh, and so he 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 had a choice. Uh, he, he wasn't born depraved. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's important. Uh, now, I would add to that a verse that we talked about earlier in Matthew chapter eighteen. Where Jesus said uh, about little children, He said, "Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven." Matthew eighteen verse three. If little children are depraved, my they're they're totally and completely and utterly depraved. They're incapable of doing good.
4: Be like that. Why would Jesus want me to be that way? Yeah, doesn't make sense. I mean, the, all through the scriptures we're taught not to be that way. But if if what they're saying is true. Then Jesus saying, I want you to be totally depraved, just completely incapable of doing anything good or choosing to do good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to be innocent. I want you to be faithful and trustworthy and trusting just like little children are. Exactly right. Josh? Uh,
2: 1 John 3 verse 4 says, Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. I
0: think that just uh, so how do, you get, so. How, uh, how do I get there? Sin. I, I, sin. I, I, I sin. Whosoever... Sins transgress the law. I do that. I I don't I don't inherit it and I'm not born that way. I make a choice to do that.
3: Anything, Kyle, on your end? No, we were responsible for our own uh for our own I guess you could say destinies. We we're responsible for our own actions, our own sins. Uh we weren't born born in sin, we weren't born with depravity. It's just yeah, we were responsible for our own sins and our own uh
0: okay i think you're exactly right all right
3: Uh, i think that so that that idea of uh, again the calvinist
0: takes the idea of inherited sin a step farther and says not only do you inherit sin but you inherit a depraved nature the bible does not teach that all right we're gonna have to move a little quickly here daniel
4: points out to us in his email uh second peter chapter three verse nine says the lord is not slow about his promises some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And so the, the Calvinists would tell us here, that, as you were reading, that I can't do anything about it myself. God has to pick me.
0: And he may not pick
4: you. And he may not pick me. This passage is saying God wants everybody to come yeah, to repentance. Exactly right. Exactly right. All right, let's move
0: quickly. Before our last break, I want to give just a little bit of history. I ask you, what's the history of infant baptism? Where did that come from anyway? Uh, I got a few quotes here that I want to read, and then then when we come back from the break, we'll try to dive into whether infant baptism is taught in the New Testament. First of all, the first hint of infant baptism was in the second century A.D. when Irenaeus uh, said, All who through him are born again unto God, all who through Christ are born again unto God. Infants, children, boys, and youth, and old men. That's the first hint in any secular writing. It was uh, over 100 years after Christianity began. Irenaeus hinted at the idea of infants, maybe. It uh, doesn't say they were baptized, but he, he, he those who come to him to be born again. And he mentions infants. So it may have come along over 100 years after Christianity began. Cyprian who lived from 200 to 258 said, But even, but if even the chief of sinners receive the forgiveness of sins on coming to the faith, and no one is precluded from baptism and from grace, how less should the child be kept back, which is but just born, cannot have sinned, but has only brought with it by its descent from Adam the infection of the old death, the sins which are forgiven it are not its own, but those of another. And so there there was a, a secular writer writing sometime in the 200s who again suggested they inherit sin and they mm-hmm. need to be baptized to be forgiven of those sins. Uh, and then uh, Origen, who uh, lived in that same time frame sometime in the two, early 200s A.D., he said infants are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Of what sin? Or when have they sinned? He says, none is free from the pollution through the life, though the life be the length of one day upon another. He says, no one is free from the pollution of sin, though he only has lived one day upon the earth. And it is for that reason, because by the sacrament of baptism, the pollution of our birth is taken away, that infants are baptized Again, teaching. They need it because they inherited sin. And so, uh, again, infant baptism began to be practiced probably over a 100 years after uh, the commencement of Christianity in the first century. Here's here's an interesting quote from a guy named Albert Taylor Bledsoe. He's a, a Methodist Episcopal a uh, church uh, scholar, he says, it is now This is, this. is he speaks of the Methodist. He says, it is an article of our faith that the baptism of young children and infants uh, is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable to the institution of the church. But yet with all our searching, we have been unable to find in the New Testament a single express declaration or word in favor of infant baptism. So he's a Methodist. He said, we like it. And we're going to keep it. But we've done a lot of searching, and we can't find even one hint in the New Testament that it was practiced in the early church. <clears throat> a Lutheran scholar by the name of H.A.W. Meyer said, The baptism of children of Christians, of which no trace is found in the New Testament, is not to be held as an apostolic ordinance, as it, as indeed it, encou- it, it encountered early and long resistance but it is an institution of the church, which gradually arose in post-apostolic times. So there's a Lutheran, and they practice it, but he said, we admit that.
4: And it's not it was, in the Bible.
0: It's not in the Bible. It was post for a long time. It came about after the apostolic age. After the age of inspiration, it came about. Yeah. So there's a little history on infant baptism. It's not, even, even denominational scholars acknowledge that it was not practiced in the first century, and it's not found in our New Testaments.
4: You know, uh, Daniel, in, in his email says uh, it might would make sense that if an infant can hear, believe, repent, confess, then it would make more sense. But in Acts chapter eight, verse twelve, it's only talking about men and women being baptized. It's not just there's no evidence of, a, of an infant okay, baptized.
0: Okay, good. We want to look at some of those passages when we come back. We're going to look at uh, whether it's scriptural or not. Did you have any history on it,
2: John? No, no, what you had is what I
0: had. Okay, all right, so when we come back, we're going to look at the scriptures relative to infant baptism. Stay with us. We're going to go to the top of the hour right after this break.
1: These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. My name is Rick Harris, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. I hope you'll join me and many others in this weekly Internet Bible study group. Be sure to listen every Thursday night.
0: We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. The share of the U.S. population that identifies as Christian has declined significantly in recent years. Surveys show that the number of Americans who identify as Christian dropped by nearly 8 percentage points from 78.4% to 70.6% over a seven-year period. At the same time, the number of people who are religiously unaffiliated, either atheist, agnostic, or simply nothing in particular, grew by more than 6 percentage points from 16.1% to 22.8%. There are now approximately 56 million religiously unaffiliated adults living in America. That information is via the Huffington Post. The Word of God says in Proverbs 14, verse 34, Righteousness exalted the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people.
1: Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archives section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study.
0: And we're back on the virtual Bible study going to the top of the hour. We're talking now about infant baptism. But, but I hope everybody understands the connection of the things we've been talking about. Infant baptism is practiced in the denominational world because of these false doctrines of inherited sin and, and hereditary depravity. If, if we're born depraved and if we inherit the sins of our fathers all the way back to Adam, then we need to be baptized as infants. But if those things are not true, then there wouldn't be a need for an infant to be baptized because he's sinless and he's pure. And that's what Jesus taught in Matthew 18 verse 3. And so, again, these, these doctrines are connected to one another and they stand or fall together. I think you have to say that. And so if, if, if infants do not inherit sin, then they don't need to be baptized, and that's what I think we we point out. Um, What do you got, Josh? What do you think? How would you ask, I asked the question, is infant baptism scriptural? How how would you attack that question?
2: Well, I think that the email that Monty read from Daniel about hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, none of those things infants can do. But one thing I thought was interesting in Matthew 19, verse 13, uh, Jesus had little children brought to him, and he said, uh, there were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. So when little children are brought to Jesus, he didn't take them and baptize them. He wanted to pray with them, and he said, Such is the kingdom of heaven, these little children.
4: Exactly right. Exactly right. Monty? You know, we're all the time talking about authority, that we have to do whatever we do in our religious practice. We have to be able to find New Testament authority for doing it. And as we look through the New Testament, the entirety of the New Testament, we find absolutely no authority for baptizing an infant. We find authority for baptizing adults, but not infants. We have men, women. The whole thing, everybody that we have a record of being baptized in the New Testament was able to hear, believe, repent, and confess, and then be baptized. They, just like the Ethiopian eunuch, asked if he could be baptized. You know, nobody had twist his arm and force him to it, uh, like you would if you was going to baptize an infant. uh, You know, he'd go down kicking and screaming because he don't want to get wet. Well, people that are interested in salvation can ask to be baptized. They're curious about it. They want to know what they've got to do to be saved, to have their relationship with God fixed, and they're going to do that. But that's always somebody that's able to understand the message, to hear, to believe what they've been taught, to repent of those sins that they've been taught they've been committing confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and then to be immersed in water to have their sins washed away. That's the pattern we find in the New Testament. That's the authority we find in the New Testament, and we don't see anything else. I think you're exactly right. And that
0: baptism that we read about in the New Testament was always by immersion. And Kent, in his email, points out that other than the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church, uh, there there's no other... The Catholics nor any denomination that practices infant, they don't really baptize. Baptism means immersion, mm-hmm. and, and so Kent is pointing out that in the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church they actually do immerse babies when they baptize them. At least, at least it is immersion. Yeah. But what the others are doing the, the sprinkling or pouring of water on babies is not real baptism anyway. I think it's interesting that Kent point that pointed that out. Uh, He says, that which is commonly referred to as infant baptism is not a New Testament doctrine at all. It's purely a human false doctrine stemming from a perversion of the truth. And I think that's right. One, uh, Several ways to approach this. You guys follow with me and comment on the... First of all, when Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, and and it funnels down to us today, he said, go therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. So you're to teach them and baptize them and then teach them some more. But teaching preceded baptism. In mm-hmm. the Great Commission, I can't teach a baby. A baby's incapable of learning. An infant cannot learn the the things that are necessary in order to be obedient. So that that's the point you guys were making already. But just from the Great Commission itself, uh, you'd have to say there's no there's no authority for infant baptism. Uh, as you guys pointed out, no apostolic example. There's not an example of, a, of a, an apostle baptizing in a baby. Instead, what we have, like on the day of Pentecost, people heard the, the sermon that Peter preached and asked, as you mentioned, Bonnie. they asked, what should we do? And they were told, repent and be baptized. And so they were able to learn recognize their need and respond josh
2: no, i was just going to say we've got we've got a almost five month old infant at home uh we're not going to be able to teach the baby how to repent there's nothing for the repent of doing but, but if, 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 if if the baby Even did have sins a, not going to know she can't to repent. repent she's not going to know how to she, be obedient and
0: she can't speak she can't confess jesus right. but so uh, she's
2: at the mercy of what what we what we do yeah right, where we take her so she can't do any of those
0: things okay now one of the arguments that is, that is sometimes made about infant baptism is that the New Testament contains several instances where it speaks about whole houses or whole families household baptism is mentioned uh, and so. Uh, for instance, well, first of all, let's get the one you mentioned in Acts eight verse twelve. I think Daniel mentioned it in the chat room. Mm-hmm. Men and women; they were baptized, men and women, not infants, right? But what about Cornelius? Uh, it says in Acts ten, uh, so so the household of Cornelius was baptized. And the argument in all these household baptisms is that in any given household, there might be a baby. There might be an infant. Uh, and and so uh, um, in any given household, if there's an infant, there's infant baptism in the New Testament. Okay, let's take them real quickly one at a time. What about Cornelius? Well, there weren't any infants in Cornelius' household because in Acts chapter 10, verse 2, it said he feared God with all his house. Everybody in Cornelius' household was old enough to know and fear God, right? Uh, Lydia, Lydia, uh, in Acts chapter sixteen, uh, it says that uh, in verse fifteen of Acts sixteen, it says she was baptized, and her household. Uh, well, again, if it's a whole household, there might be babies in the household that might that might be infant baptism, maybe. Well not really because later in the chapter at verse 40 after paul and silas had been released from prison they went out of the prison entered into the house of lydia and when they had seen the brethren they comforted them and departed the brethren were such as could be comforted by seeing paul and hearing uh you know uh, the news of their release there weren't any infants in lydia's house the jailer's household in that same chapter, Acts chapter 16, uh, it says in verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Oh, there's another household, maybe babies in that household. No, the previous verse says they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house, everybody in his house old enough to be taught, and the next verse says he brought them to his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house, everybody in his house old enough to believe and rejoice and then one more in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 16, uh, 1 Corinthians one verse sixteen, Paul says, I baptized also the household of stephanus, well there's a household, might be an infant in that household, might be infant baptism. No, not in that household. Look in First Corinthians sixteen, verse sixteen. Ye know the house of Stephanus that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. No, no, but no infants there. These everybody in Stephanus' household had addicted themselves to the ministry of saints, An infant couldn't do that. So all of the, <clears throat> I, I got to tell you, I think this is just an incredibly weak argument, Monty. If that's the best I can do, is say there might be a baby in any of these households. When it's not mentioned that there were, but there might be, if if I'm gonna if I'm gonna hang this very prevalent traditional denominational practice on what might be, when in fact the text says it wasn't true anyway, that's a pretty weak argument.
4: You know, uh, to to say that that household would have included babies um, here at College View, I don't know how many households there are. I would guess. That well over half, probably closer to 75% of the households represented here at the church at College View do not have children or infants in them. Uh, now, there's several that do that have infants in them. You know, Josh, you mentioned he, his. My son has infants in his household, small children that we don't believe would be candidates for baptism. But the majority of the households here, I would say a, a strong majority, do not have infants. So just taking that as a subset uh, average of the world even it to say well there has to be infant baptism because there was households there you can't i mean that's not a that, good guess that's, that's, not that's, a that's good really assumption. hanging way out on
0: the end of that's the not land. a good assumption i think you're right exactly right
2: uh second peter one verse three says As according to his divine power have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness uh If baptism isn't mentioned, so to me, that tells me it doesn't
0: pertain to life and godliness. Real quickly, we're just all but out of time. Some would like to suggest that baptism in the New Testament is the parallel to circumcision in the Old Testament. And a verse that would be used along that line, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Colossians 2.11, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. The argument is made, that they, they circumcised babies in the Old Testament on the eighth day. When they were eight days old, male babies in the Old Testament were circumcised under the law of Moses. And this this says that baptism is a sort of circumcision made without hands. Um, again, there, there's, there's some symbolism, I suppose, there. But it's, it, it you can't take that symbolism beyond where it's intended. Who are the ones who are circumcised? This, uh, so verse 11 says, putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Who are the ones who who experienced that? Those who were dead in their sins. Verse 13. We already said that does not include babies. So babies were not dead in their sins. And therefore they weren't they didn't need this circumcision done without hands, the cutting off of the sins of the flesh there's a lot of symbolism in that passage, but it can't be said that that applies to babies because the ones to whom this symbolism of the circumcision made without hands, the ones to whom that applies are the ones in verse thirteen who were dead in sins, now that would be people who were. Old enough to be accountable for their sins. Mm-hmm. Because we already we already destroyed the notion of inherited sins or hereditary depravity. So this is not talking about babies. This is not talking about people who've made a decision to sin. They're dead in sins, and they need to have this circumcision done without hands, the putting off of the sins of the flesh done in baptism.
4: And he's referring, using this physical act, but he's saying this is a circumcision done without hands. It's a it's a spiritual act. It's something in, done in the heart. It's got nothing to do with inherited sin or anything like that. It's something we would have to choose to do. Yeah. our heart has to be prompted to want to be baptized. Well, like we've been talking about, I can't even teach my grandchildren, at the ones like at Joshua's house. The oldest one is five. I can't even teach her really about baptism because she can't grasp the notion and understand what it's for yet. Uh, and the other one is four, and the other is four months. And the four-month-old, I surely can't. T- I mean, I can't get his attention half the time. not to mention teach him about anything. Yeah. He can't uh, yeah. understand my yeah. words. Exactly so right. we have to be taught. It's talking about the Bible. As we're talking about the Great Convention, go teach. I can't teach a, an infant what they need to do because they can't understand my words. All right. We're just out of time. Josh, any last thoughts? No,
2: I just think the, the Bible way works,
4: and that's what we need to stick
3: with. All right, good. Kyle, any last thoughts? No, it's, as we've said over and over again, it's just uh, if we teach what the Bible teaches, we would be desperate to teach infants if it was taught in the Bible. We would be tripping over ourselves to baptize our infants, but it's just not plainly taught in the Bible. I think you're right. All right, that wraps up our
0: study tonight. I hope it's been helpful. Uh, again, we're just trying to figure out what does the Bible say, and the Bible's pretty plain on that. we just got to have the faith to take the Bible and understand it as it's written, apply it as, it, as it's taught, uh, That's the challenge. That's the challenge for us all. But I hope we've answered those questions about inherited sin, total depravity, hereditary depravity, and infant baptism. We thank you for listening to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. Lord willing, we'll be back here next Thursday night at 8 o'clock for another episode of the Virtual Bible Study. Between now and then, we encourage you to read your Bible, live by it every day. You'll never regret it.